Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. There are some people who just can't get along. It could be the result of politics, religion, philosophies, property, honor, a personal slight, a perceived insult, or uh, a million things, really. One of the most famous feuds in history might be the Hatfield and the McCoys, who fought each other along the border between Kentucky and West Virginia in the late 1800s. It started over a hog, a pig. Did it belong to Floyd Hatfield or Randolph McCoy? In the end, more than a dozen people were killed on both sides of this feud, largely over this pig. Here's something a little more relatable. German brothers Adolf and Rudolf Dassler co-founded a shoe company in their mother's basement. When U.S. sprinter Jesse Owens used their shoes for the 1936 Berlin Olympics, sales blew up. But the brothers couldn't deal with the success and kept fighting and fighting and fighting. Finally, in 1948, they just couldn't take it anymore, and the company split in two. Adolf called his company Adidas, and Rudolf named his Puma. Oh, here's a good one. R2-D2 and C-3PO, yeah, from Star Wars, never really liked each other. Anthony Daniels, the guy inside the gold C-3PO suit, was a classically trained actor and never really liked the fact that he had to play this robot. Meanwhile, Kenny Baker, the little guy inside R2-D2, was a circus performer. Daniels never, ever let Baker forget that he would never be in the same league as him. That is just one of the many different feuds to be found in the performing arts. When artistic types have a beef, it can get very, very weird. The Beatles versus the Stones, although that was a manufactured fight. They were actually very good friends. But after the Beatles broke up, Paul and John scrapped a lot in the media. There's Ray and Dave Davies and the Kinks, so no love lost there. David Gilmore versus Roger Waters and Pink Floyd. Brian Love and Mike Wilson and the Beach Boys. And think of all the rap beefs. Biggie versus Tupac, Kanye versus Drake, Nas versus Jay-Z. That list is endless. But what about some contemporary rock feuds, fights that have happened over the last, let's say, couple of decades? Well, thanks for asking, because here they come. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Hello again, I'm Alan Cross, and there's going to be a whole lot of fighting going on with this episode. Feuds and beefs and disses have been going on in music forever. It's always been part of the landscape, given that arguments between musicians are super common. I mean, let's think uh, Mozart and Salieri. With this program, we're going to highlight some of the more interesting ones from the last mm, 40, 45 years or so. 
beginning with what must rank as one of the most awkward intra-band relationships of all time. Joey Ramone was a liberal sort of dude with sympathies for hippie types and those with progressive outlooks on life. Guitarist Joey Ramone hated hippies. He was about as conservative as it got when it came to politics. When Ronald Reagan came along, Johnny was all in. Well, Joey hated everything about Reagan. But they managed to come together in a band and found common ground over music. In 1976, just as the Ramones were starting to become known, Joey met a young 16-year-old fan named Linda Danielle. She was from Queens. They met at CBGB, the punk club where the Ramones were practically the house band for a while. A couple of years later, Joey and Linda met up again in Los Angeles, and this is when they hooked up. Joey and Linda were a couple, and soon she was joining the Ramones in their van as they moved from gig to gig. This did not sit well with Johnny, who insisted that she sit in the very back row of the van. This went on for about a year, and slowly, Linda and Johnny discovered that they actually had a lot in common. Neither of them drank, neither of them did drugs, she liked to cook, and Johnny liked home-cooked meals. And so, Johnny started having dinner with Joey and Linda, even though he and Joey didn't really like each other. Before long, they became best friends. I'm speaking of Linda and Joey here. Linda was a nice antidote to the alcoholic woman that Johnny was dating at the time. Eventually, though, back to Joey, he and Linda decided to get engaged. But when Joey's mom insisted that he buy a cheaper ring than what Linda wanted, things got rough. They had their first fights. And somewhere on the line, Johnny realized that he was in love with Linda. Johnny made his intentions known and intimidated Joey with his presence and obvious intentions. And Joey, the sensitive sort, hated conflict, so he took a passive approach. And over the next year and a half or so, Linda moved away from Joey and towards Johnny. Eventually, there was a breakup, and Johnny and Linda became a couple. This was in the early 1980s. Linda and Johnny then got married in 1984. Yet, the Ramones stuck together and continued to tour in that van. Joey didn't speak to Linda again until 1993, and Joey and Johnny almost never spoke again right up until the time the band broke up in 1996. Imagine riding in that van. It was a quiet feud that put the business of the band before any personal situations between two key members, but the feelings were so intense that even as Joey lay dying in a hospital bed in early 2000, he never got a call from Johnny, and Johnny never went to the funeral. I quote, I was in California, said Johnny. I wasn't going to travel all the way to New York, but I wouldn't have gone anyway. I wouldn't want him coming to my funeral, and I wouldn't want to hear from him if I were dying. I don't only want to see my friends. Let me die and leave me alone. Now that you know the story, this song from 1982, written by Joey, just as the girlfriend issues were getting weird, makes a whole lot more sense. Our next feud involves Kurt Cobain and Eddie Vedder. What was their problem? The two bands were in competition to be the biggest grunge band of the early 1990s. Kurt may have started it by jawing about how he didn't like Pearl Jam. He considered them careerist and not true to any punk rock or alternative roots. 
Kurt thought that Pearl Jam was way too commercial, way too corporate, and appealed way too much to jocks. Kurt hated jocks. However, Kurt also claimed that he liked Eddie and that he, you know, did seem like a good person. A couple of things. First, both bands were struggling with the fact that they become tremendously popular and successful. They did not know how to deal with their fame and their newfound power. In 1993, Kurt said this to Rolling Stone, There never was a feud. I slagged them off because I didn't like their band. It was my fault. I should have been slagging off the record company instead of them. They were marketed, not probably against their will, but without them realizing that they were being pushed into the grunge bandwagon. For Eddie's part, he now agrees that Kurt was probably right about what was happening to Pearl Jam at the time. Second, a lot of this feud was the invention of the media coverage of the day. Quotes from members of both bands were taken out of context and mashed up together in a story to make it look like there was a bitter rivalry when there really wasn't much of a thing going on at all. But it did make for some very interesting gossip for a while. While there may not have been an actual feud between Nirvana and Pearl Jam, there was definitely bad blood between Nirvana and Guns N' Roses, specifically with Axl Rose. It began when Kurt refused an offer by the Gunners to have Nirvana open for them on one of their massive world tours. Axl was a fan of Nirvana. In fact, if you go back to the band's Don't Cry video, Axl is wearing a Nirvana hat. He kept calling Kurt again and again and again. At the time, Guns N' Roses was the biggest rock band in the world. Too big for Kurt, though, who was concerned that being seen cozying up to them would be perceived as a sellout. He was quoted as saying things like, We're not your typical Guns N' Roses type of band that has absolutely nothing to say. And Rebellion is standing up to people like Guns N' Roses. Axel started calling Kurt and Courtney junkies, claiming that their daughter had been born with birth defects because of their drug use. Axel felt insulted and snubbed. And this boiled over to an altercation backstage at the 1992 MTV Music Video Awards between Axel, Kurt, and Courtney Love. Axel said something to Kurt about keeping his woman in line, although I don't think he used those words. Uh, anyway, it didn't go down well. And meanwhile, Nirvana bass player Chris Novoselic and Gunner's bass player Duff McKagan were yelling at each other about something. In late 1992, Kurt gave an interview with this quote. Axel is a sexist and a racist and a homophobe, and you can't be on his side and be on our side. I'm sorry I have to divide this up like this, but it's something you can't ignore. And besides, they can't write good music. This back and forth continued until a few days before Kurt died. After walking away from a rehab center in Los Angeles, Kurt found himself on a Delta flight back to Seattle sitting right next to Duff McKagan in business class. They had a nice chat, and Duff even offered Kurt a ride home from the airport. But before he had a chance to get in the car, Kurt vanished, and before long, he was dead. Since then, everybody has made up. In fact, back in 2016, when Axel had a broken bone in his foot, he borrowed Dave Grohl's throne, the one he used to tour when Dave broke his leg. But let's go back to the 1992 MTV Music Video Awards. Nirvana's performance came after the backstage confrontation where things got super weird. Now, hold on to the very end when Dave Grohl comes to the mic and taunts Axel from the stage on live TV. 
probably not the most gracious way to end a performance, but uh, okay, whatever. It was 92. This feud was really, really real, but it's all better now. Back with more Famous Feuds in just a sec. Welcome back to this look at Famous Rock and Roll Feuds. One of the greatest and most intense was the fight between Oasis and Blur in the middle 1990s. This was definitely real and undeniably ugly. It had all the elements needed for a proper British punch-up. Working-class yobs from the North versus posh, or at least comparatively posh, university lads from the South. Authentic versus inauthentic. They appeared at almost exactly the same times, and both bands blew up in tandem. In February 1995, Blur won four awards at the Brits, and they were, you know, kind of gracious, publicly saying that they should have shared things with Oasis. Later, when there was a party for Oasis when the single Some Might Say reached number one, Blur's Damon Albarn went so he could congratulate them. But then Liam Gallagher got into Damon's face, bragging about it, and that you know, it didn't really go over all that well. There were other jabs from Oasis, like the time a drugged-up Noel, who was doing a lot of cocaine back then, told a journalist that he hoped that Damon Albarn would catch AIDS and die. Not his finest hour. And Damon recalls thinking that the whole lot of them were behaving like bullies. And then there was the rumor that Damon was having a one-night stand with a girl Liam was seeing. This did not help. And some might say that this was the real start of the feud. Liam denied that this was the problem, but okay, whatever. The two groups were heading towards a war, and it happened in the summer of 1995. Both Oasis and Blur had new albums scheduled for that fall. Blur's The Great Escape was set for release on September 11th. What's the Story Morning Glory from Oasis would come out October 2nd. Okay, no problem. There was more than enough space between the two albums so that each group could have their number one record. The problem lay with the release of the first singles from each album. Oasis announced that Roll With It would be released on August 14, 1995. But then Blur announced that they too would release a single called Country House on that very same day. There could only be one number one debut record that week. And thus the battle of Britpop commenced. The whole country got wrapped up in the fight. Bookies were laying six to four odds that Oasis would win. Even the mainstream media covered the story. Two of Britain's most popular pop groups have begun the biggest chart war in 30 years. The Manchester band Oasis and their arch rivals Blur released new singles today, each hoping to reach the number one spot next week. When all the record sales were tallied up and the results were released on August 20th, 1995, the winner was Blur. 274,000 copies to 216,000 copies, a 58,000-unit margin of victory. They claimed the number one spot and got to appear on top of the pops. Bass player Alex James wore a torn-up Oasis t-shirt for the event. In the end, however, the overall winner was Oasis. What's the story? Morning Glory became a massive global hit, selling close to 25 million copies. The Great Escape sold a little more than a tenth of that. At the 1995 Brit Awards, Oasis won three trophies, and Blur got none. The animosity continued for years afterward. It wasn't until Oasis broke up in 2009 that things began to thaw. Age has mellowed both Noel and Damon to the point where they've performed together on stage. They never talk about the past, but both recognize that they went through the same sort of madness in the 1990s.
Let's move on to another food. And this one, honestly, probably didn't really exist. It's another example of how the British music media invents controversies, so they had something to write about. This war goes back to the 1980s, when both The Cure and The Smiths were young bands. Morrissey appears to have started it off by calling Robert Smith a whinge bag in an interview. Smith retaliated in another interview, saying that Morrissey's so depressing that if he doesn't off himself soon, I probably will. The back-and-forth yammering continued for years, decades, in fact. But it really wasn't much more than that. A petty feud, as Robert Smith calls it. He's since expressed regret for the whole thing, and so has Morrissey. In 2019, Morrissey said, I said some terrible things about him 35 years ago, but I didn't mean them. It's great when you can blame everything on Tourette syndrome. Morrissey doesn't have Tourette, by the way. Robert Smith responded this way. The apology was slightly odd, as I haven't really had it at the forefront of my consciousness over the last 20 or 30 years. Even at the time, I never quite understood what the problem was. It's far from important now. So, consider the situation resolved. Moving on, there still seems to be many hard feelings between Metallica and their former lead guitarist Dave Mustaine, now the head of Megadeth, but back in the day, a co-founder of Metallica. Metallica was on tour, and everybody was drinking a lot, especially Dave. According to stories from the time, alcohol made him volatile, angry, and occasionally violent. On April 11th, 1983, Metallica was in New York to record their debut album, and it was then that Mustaine was fired. It was nine in the morning. Dave was sleeping when the band woke him up and told him to get out. They'd already hired Kirk Hammett as his replacement. There was no warning, no second chance. Now it was time for Dave, all his gear, and his hangover to get on a Greyhound bus for that four-day ride back to California. He uh, wasn't happy and fumed for much of the time. He decided that the best revenge would be to form his own band. So he started writing out some lyrics on a piece of scrap paper which was actually a political handbill from Senator Alan Cranston. At the time, the Cold War between the U.S. and the Soviet Union was really bad, and Cranston's handbill warned about stockpiling nuclear weapons. I quote, The arsenal of Megadeth can't be rid. Dave thought that Megadeth would be a good name for his new band, and so it came to pass. Metallica, of course, went on to become extraordinarily successful, but Megadeth has done all right, too. And Dave realizes that he probably had it coming that day in 1983. I had been physically reckless, and there had been a lot of pushing and shoving on my part with everybody in the band. I was very unpredictable, and I embarrassed everyone around me. He just wishes that he had some kind of warning and maybe a way to fix things instead of getting fired. Even then, it took him another five years to start getting cleaned up. By the way, the lyrics to the song he scribbled on that handbill eventually became the song called Set the World Afire. Oh, 
Megadeth with one-time Metallica lead guitarist Dave Mustaine. That feud went on for a long time, and somehow I still get the impression that there's some bad blood there. If you watch the 2004 Metallica documentary, Some Kind of Monster, you can see a confrontation between Dave and drummer Lars Ulrich. Nothing was solved, and for the next 10 years, there was a lot of back and forthing between the two. Most of these issues have since been mostly resolved, but again, you still get the feeling that the tension will never really go away. I have a few more feuds that need exploring, including the beef Jack White seems to have with the Black Keys. If there are two people who will probably never, ever really get along, it's Courtney Love and Dave Grohl. This goes all the way back to when Courtney decided that she was going to be Kurt's boyfriend. They were formally introduced at a concert in 1991, just as Nirvana was recording Nevermind. Things got intense real fast, and by February 1992, they were married. The first evidence I can find of some kind of bad blood was an interview Dave gave in 1999, a few years after the Foo Fighters got going. When asked what his favorite whole song was, he replied, Teenage Whore, because that's the one I know Courtney actually wrote. It got ugly real fast, with Courtney going after Dave in the media over various legal disputes involving Nirvana and the band's music. She said that Dave was sexually obsessed with Kurt, and the only reason he hired Taylor Hawkins as the Foo's drummer was because he looked so much like Kurt. And then there was the time she accused Dave of hitting on Francis, Kurt and Courtney's daughter. Such stuff went on for about 15 years and only intensified after social media became a thing. There seemed to be some kind of public reconciliation when they hugged it out at the 2014 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame ceremony. That's when Nirvana was inducted. But there's still tension there. Courtney has said several times that Dave's reputation as the nicest guy in rock is a sham. She once said that to my face, too. There was a blow-up in the summer of 2021 when she posted something pretty incendiary about Dave and former Flame Trent Reznor on Instagram. But not only was that post deleted, an apology followed. I quote, I need to apologize for my recent post. It was insensitive and it was wrong. No matter how I feel, there are real people behind my words and I need to learn better to be more responsible with my words. I am truly sorry for those I've hurt and I will do better. Uh... Does that sound like Courtney? When you allege child abuse, someone has to do something. Meanwhile, both Dave and Trent have kept quiet about the whole thing. No comments, no reactions. To end things off, there are a couple of feuds involving Jack White that we need to talk about. Jack can be a very intense sort of guy. No surprise there, really. An attribute that can cause problems. He has a history of feuds, so let's go through some of them. 2002, Ryan Adams covers several White Stripes songs, but changed some of the lyrics. Jack attacked Adams in the press for this, and things went on for a while before Adams said some nice things about the White Stripes, and the whole thing kind of disappeared. Back in December 2003, there was an altercation between Jack and Jason Stolsteimer of another Detroit band called the Von Bondies. This happened at a club called The Magic Stick, where Jason was at a record release party for another band. The story is that Jack tried to speak with Jason, but was brushed off. Some say Jack pinned Jason against the speaker stacks and started yelling. And when Jason refused to take the bait, Jack was enraged and allegedly threw Jason to the ground 
and punched him in the face seven times and then spat on him. It took several people to pull Jack away. This is pretty weird since Jack had helped the Von Bondies in the past, producing an album for them and inviting the band to open for the White Stripes. In the end, Jack pleaded guilty to aggravated assault. He was fined $750 and told to take an anger management course. You remember the Von Bondies from this song, right? It was used all over television and video games for a while. Moving on to more jack-white feuds. There was a fight with a filmmaker in 2004 about some unauthorized White Stripes performance footage. A beef with English indie guitarist Billy Childish in 2006. Some ill-advised remarks to a group of vegans in a Brooklyn park in 2010. Shots against Lady Gaga, against Twitter, against Clint Eastwood, and even ex-wife Meg White in 2012. And that was followed by shots against Karen Elson, another ex-wife. That came in 2013. We finally get to the Black Keys beef. For some reason, Jack had a disdain for guitarist Dan Auerbach, calling him a copycat and calling him out for allegedly getting involved in the custody battle he was having with Karen Elson, that ex-wife. Both Dan and Jack lived in Nashville, and Jack was annoyed that Dan was sending his kids from another relationship to the same private school that Jack's ex, and we're talking about Karen Elson now, sending their kids. Some emails were leaked, and they were kind of vicious. So this is 2013. Arbach was banned from ever setting foot in Jack's third man studios in Nashville. But then there seemed to be some kind of reconciliation. In the spring of 2014, an apology appeared on Jack's website. I wish the Black Keys all the success that they can get, he said. Lord knows that I can tell you myself how hard it is to get people to pay attention to a two-piece band with a plastic guitar. So any attention that the Black Keys can get in this world, I wish it for them. So we're all good, right? No. The following year, Jack went after the Black Keys again, accusing them of ripping off what Jack was doing. And then in 2015, drummer Patrick Carney ran into Jack at a New York City bar. It was September the 13th, and the venue was a place called Cabin Down Below. Carney had never met Jack before in person, and I quote Patrick. I've never met Jack White until last night. He came to a bar in New York City I go to a lot with a few friends and tried to fight me. I don't fight and don't get fighting, but he was mad. He is why I play music. The bully a-holes who made me feel like nothing. Music was a private, non-competitive thing. Not the best drummer, but a passionate one. But anyway, Jack White, a 40-year-old bully, tried to fight the 35-year-old nerd. It might get loud, but it might also get really, really sad and pathetic. Jack White is basically Billy Corgan's dumbass zero t-shirt in human form. Jack replied, nobody tried to fight you, Patrick. Nobody touched you or bullied you. You were asked a question and you couldn't answer, so you walked away. So quit whining on the internet and speak face-to-face like a human being. End of story. But then something must have been settled because Carney sent out another tweet. Talk to Jack for an hour. He's cool. All good. Jack responded, from one musician to another, you have my respect, Patrick Carney. So are we done? Who can say? Here are a few more rock beefs from the last 30 years. Trent Reznor versus Marilyn Manson. 
They used to be good buddies, but it appears that Manson got way too weird and sick for Trent's liking. They are mortal enemies now. Courtney Love versus Billy Corgan. For a while in the early 90s, there was something of a love triangle going on that also included Kurt Cobain. When Kurt died, Courtney and Billy got back together for a while, and then they broke up. And they got back together for two years beginning in 2006. There were some hard feelings amongst all that, but things have settled down. And then there's the most violent rock feud of them all, involving the black metal band Mayhem. Two members, Varg Vikernes and Euronymous, argued over what to do with the pieces of skull blown off when bandmate Dead, seriously, that was his name, Dead, committed suicide. Euronymous wanted to make a necklace out of the fragments and then blow up a cathedral in Dead's honor. Varg didn't think either idea was very good and became convinced that Euronymous was plotting to kill him. So Varg stabbed Euronymous 23 times. He was arrested and sent to prison. Beat that for a band feud. Certainly makes Liam and Noel, which is another story entirely, seem like a disagreement at a tea party. Anyway, that seems like a good place to end. Remember that all ongoing history radio programs are available as convenient podcasts. Just download and go from any podcast platform you choose. More music news and information daily at my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com. Make sure you get the free daily newsletter too. We can meet up on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok, and all email can go to alan and alancross.ca. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. We'll talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 